this is Craig. Welcome to the Wine Beat Podcast. And today's episode is about Spain. My co-host, the person who's going to lead us through this tour of Spain, is my friend Shannon Ward. Shannon is the wine buyer at Cask and Barrel in Kelowna, BC. And Shannon has tremendous background and experience in the wine business, working in buying, marketing, but also working in the winemaking side of things and working in the hospitality side of things. I can't think of a better person to run through with us uh, the wines of Spain than Shannon. I think she does a terrific job. It's it's necessarily brief. This takes about an hour in this format. And, you know, we can only scratch the surface of a place like Spain in terms of regions, varieties, history, all that sort of stuff. But, but we do our best. Um, in fact, I've broken the podcast into two because of that length. I think maybe it's a bit more digestible if we have two roughly half-hour pieces. Uh, but... Without further ado, let's get in there. We're going to cover it as best we can. We can't cover everything. We can't do it all, but there's this is very informative. Shannon does a great job. She said she enjoyed doing this podcast with me, and, and I'm, I'm going to, on the back of that, I'm going to take her up on the possibility of doing more episodes like this because I would really like to do episodes where we, you know, break down a wine region, uh, focus in, and try to understand better, you know, what what that's all about, what that region is all about. So uh, give me your feedback. Let me, let me know how you how you like this. And uh, and with that, let's just jump right in. Here we go. Boom. Hi, Shannon. Hi. Good to be here at Cask and Barrel. Uh, we're in your wine shop uh, in West Kelowna in BC, Canada. And uh, I'll mention Cask and Barrel because it's one of the better known wine stores in town. I think you're probably known as having the best selection of wine. Thank you. And craft beer. Of course. A very good craft beer selection. We're sitting in your warehouse. Uh, it's a real uh, honor to be here and to have the chance to chat with you. Um, thanks for having me here. Thanks for asking me to do this. I, I, was, <laughs> I, had, to, I had to lean on you. I, I heard you were the right person to do this, and so I had to lean on you to do it. Uh, no pressure. <laughs> okay, so... We are going to talk about the wine regions of Spain today. Yes. Uh, but before we get into that, we should hear about you and your background and how you got into wine. I kind of got into wine uh, not on purpose. I I worked for a restaurant out in Calgary after I graduated, and they wanted to hire me, and, and they told me that I had to learn about wine and I said, okay, sure, what do I have to do? So I took my level one and two W set. That was 13 years ago. And then spent eight years living in um, Calgary, traveling. I used to Coming, live in Calgary as well. Yes, it's a great place. It was a great place for me to go after I graduated. Did you enjoy living there? I did. It's it a nice a, town. It was a good place to get ahead. Right. Um, but... With the money that I made, I traveled. So, lived in Calgary on and off for eight years. Um, spent some time living in Australia, and then I came back to Calgary, and I decided I wanted to go to New Zealand, mm-hmm. somewhere that I always really wanted to travel to. So, I got my working holiday visa, went to New Zealand, and I ended up staying there for three years. I worked as um, a beverage manager and then eventually a SOM in Auckland at a restaurant called O'Connell Street Bistro. And that's just kind of where I found my love for viticulture and production. I spent 
as much time as I could working in vineyards and working with and getting to know people like Claudia from Pyramid Valley and getting mm-hmm. to know the Felton Road people. Realized I wanted to learn more about viticulture and uh, realized I could not afford to study in New Zealand. So I came back to BC and I enrolled in the viticulture program here at the college. Oh, I didn't know you did the OK College I program. Did. I did. Oh, OK. So I did that and then I wanted to finish that program and then go right into a degree program but we unfortunately don't have a degree program here in in the Okanagan so I thought well I still really wanted to study so I quickly enrolled for the level three W set finished that and then I enrolled in the diploma right after Mm -hmm. Um, I started that in 2015 and then in 2017 I finished I passed which is great. <laughs> um, but all the while uh, traveling and uh, seeing different wine regions during that time doing the diploma program, spent some time in Spain, uh, did a harvest in California, been back to New Zealand in the, in the meantime. Um, so and I did done, a harvest So you've here. done psalm work, restaurant work, and also production. vineyard work, production work. And in the winery as well, I did um, a lot of the sparkling production here at Summerhill in the Okanagan. And I worked at Quailsgate. They're sparkling. Right. And I worked at Quailsgate. So I spent almost a full year working the vineyard at Quailsgate. Did you really? Yeah. I did. Okay. So you've got a very well rounded experience for such a young person. Well, you can't really judge wines unless you know production, You, you need to know all of it in order to know about wine. I think that's true. I mean, that, that, that is definitely true. Mm-hmm. Um, so much of it is in the make, in the growing, uh, and so much of it is in the cellar. And I think one thing that happened in New Zealand and in Auckland, and when I was working in that psalm role there, I, I always found there were so many people that would come into the restaurant and they would talk about the wines that they were drinking and they would be so critical about these wines, but they didn't really know anything about how they were produced. And and I didn't think that I could speak conf- confidently enough about that until I learned about it myself. So yeah. that was the driving side to me, learning viticulture and production. Um, it's a little bit like people criticizing a movie, a director's direction on a movie. It was the director's, you know, he had the raw material. Take on it, And right? it was his interpretation. You may or may not love it. But, you know, the vineyard gives you the grapes in a year that it gives you. The winemaker has a vision as to what he wants to do. And you may or may not love those wines, right? But uh, It's true. It's kind of like a being a chef, right? Yeah. You have your own style, and some people like it, and some people don't. Now there may be some helicopter noise as we're um, as we're having this discussion, because we're sitting in the cell in the in the warehouse of a working uh, wine store. We've got people coming in and out, turning the lights on and off, and we've also got a lot of helicopters in the background. So if you hear helicopters, uh, Shannon, uh, why do we have so many helicopters <laughs> it's, here? Uh, it's true. There's a there's a huge. Um, market here for helicopter um, mechanics and we have two 
uh, helicopter pads just right across the road. So okay, so it's a, it's a common it's a common thing, which which also pairs well with uh, wine tourism. Lots of people like to helicopter themselves around and look at vineyards. So is there a fair amount of that wine tourism by helicopter here? There is, wow. there is, but a lot of people get upset by the noise of the helicopters. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's as much as there can be. <laughs> Helicopter tourists. It's true. Can be annoying. It's a nice way to see the nice way to see the valley, I suppose. Um, Australia, New Zealand, Spain. Um, where else? Napa. Lots of Napa. time in Napa. Lots of time in Napa. How was Napa? Did you love it? It was great. I did so a harvest beautiful. up in Spring Mountain. Right. Uh, which is uh, above the Napa floor, Napa Valley floor, by about 800 meters. It's great to be there during. Did harvest. you learn about wine? Uh, a lot about winemaking in Napa. Uh, I did. I, I did. I learned about their kind of style of winemaking, which was interesting. Um, a little more winemaker influenced, I would say. Right. Um, okay. More interventionist. Is that what you mean? I feel like I'm going to get in trouble for saying that, ah, okay. but yes, but yes, perhaps. Okay. I think there's a lot of work that goes into making the wines a certain style in the winery. Yeah. Um, but looking at uh, mountain fruit versus Napa Valley floor fruit is kind of interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Is a big difference, and it's a, just a really fun place to be during harvest. Yeah. And Spain? Where did you spend time in Spain? When I was doing the diploma program, I spent one month in um, Jerez. Oh, right. Okay. You were right in the sherry, sherry country. You were production. Yep. That must have been really fascinating. It was fascinating. There's so much history there. I think that's what I really appreciate about it. But uh, it was just a nice place to hang out and be. There's good food, good beaches. The weather was nice. It was, it was great. I would go back, but probably spend a time maybe north i'd love to do rias Baixas. well we're going to go back to spain today quick uh, shout out to cask and barrel for accommodating us how long have you been with cask and barrel i've been with them since they opened we've been open now for about three and a half years my boss owns a restaurant in peachland called the gas house and they owned uh they had this license um for a liquor store for quite some time. And then we secured a spot here three and a half years ago. And just with the vision that we would have a really welcoming space for for people to come and shop. And we wanted to, we wanted to take an experience of how people are treated in a restaurant. We wanted to bring that into, into our store here. So going to talk to people when they come in, asking them what we can help them to find, um, giving them some knowledge. And um, and I think that's kind of what sets us apart from other stores is we don't just stand behind the till and wait for people to come to us. We we really want to engage with people and and uh, and teach them about things that we have in the well, store. Your and your selection, both on the wine side and the craft beer side, is, is, is pretty outstanding. There's some good wine stores here in Kelowna, but Cask and Barrel stands out for the... And I know you're... So I'm, you know, buttering you up a little bit here because you're the buyer for the wines and uh, you have a fantastic selection of wines. Thank you. Both from the Okanagan Valley, but your international selection is really, really good. Well, and I was lucky enough to come on board with um, 
uh, someone who's a friend of mine, Wade, and we we did the we did the purchasing together, and we looked at the wine section, and we just thought, you know what, we just we want to sell things that we're really passionate about and that we know about, and a lot of people said we were crazy and that we had wines in here that would never sell. They were too expensive, too obscure, and it just hasn't been the case. We we found these wines that that we love and we want to teach people about and 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 so I get it was just that thinking I guess that bold sort of thinking there was no cockiness involved in it we just we just wanted to get wines in here that we thought were kind of cool and that we wanted people to try I mean we can't we can't make our valley more knowledgeable we we can't kind of set our wines on a world stage if we don't know what other people are are making and producing. So we, no, that's very valid. That's got to be very valid that it's um, we put our own wines on a pedestal. We do in the Okanagan too because we make great wine here. But you do have to compare them to international wines and and what else is on the market. And sometimes that's true. You and see, see what other styles people yeah. are making and what's what, how are they succeeding? How are they not succeeding? And yeah. what are people loving? Like, what are people buying? It's we just we need we need to taste internationally. We're gonna do a tour of Spain. Yes. I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> You're going to have to tell the, the listeners everything there is to know about Spanish wine in 25 minutes or less. I'm going to try. All right. And the thought was that we would start in Barcelona. We've, 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 we've gone for a vacation to Spain, and we're going to taste as many wines in Spain as we can in a three-week vacation. We're going we're gonna, to – Easy Jet was the cheapest way to get there from London, so we've flown into Barcelona. And we've planned our trip to go counterclockwise around the country. So we're going to start in Barcelona. We're not even going to. We're not even going to. We're not even going to spend a night in Barcelona. We're going to go straight to wine country, and the easiest place, the closest place, I, I think. There's a lot of great wine regions right around Barcelona, but uh, right on the outskirts of the city, almost is the Penedès region. You can get there. Uh, in, um, I wish I could say the name of the the town San Sederni, um is the is the sort of the capital of the Cava region and it's in Penedès and it's like a 40 minute train ride from Barcelona so we're going to rocket straight into Penedès um, and we're going to talk about Cava and and what, whatever else Penedès has to offer so the region around Barcelona um, Catalonia region obviously is the home of the majority of production of cava. It's quite a diverse region. It encompasses subregions of Penedès, but also Priorat, and then a couple of lesser known but but great quality um, regions like uh, Conca de Barbera, um, Terra Alta, and uh, Tarragonas. Uh, but cava production is what has kind of put this this little area of Spain on the map. Um, it is a traditionally made sparkling wine. Um, it is made from three different grapes, uh, Macabeo, uh, Cherolo, and Perieta. But they use uh, they use the traditional method. And by that I mean they make their um, sparkling wines in the champagne method. 
Um, and they have everything in quality from non-vintage up to Grand Reserva Rosé. More prestigious sort of cuvées of Cava include international varieties like Chardonnay. There's a lot of history in this area, and while Cava is huge here, uh, Penedes should also be recognized for their still wine production. Uh, Torres has their home there, and Penedes is uh, known for Garnacha and uh, Monastrel production. Um, so it's more than just Cava. More than just Cava, and I think... I think Barcelona and Penedes really benefited from the relationship with Cava, right? I mean, it's... It's true. It's... Um, it's sort of emblematic of, of of that area in terms of wines. But what you're saying is there's more to it than just Cava. There's more to Penedes than just Cava. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that Torres and Roventos are two of the sort of founding families of the, those regions, and they brought uh, modern winemaking techniques to the region. Uh, they, they really pushed people to uh, make a more, you know, quality kind of product. Right. So if you were to recommend a wine from the Penedes region, would you recommend red or white? What do you think best uh, outside of the sparkling? Is there, is there something that catches your attention? Uh, well, here in store, we have a lot of Torres wines. Yeah. Um, and you like them as a producer? I love them as a producer. Uh, I, think, I think there's this shift happening uh, with a lot of Spanish producers. And when we get into it, into Rioja, I might touch on it a little bit more. Um, They have a very new world way of thinking about some of their wine production. So Torres is a great producer in that they're very forward thinking and they, they do make wines in while their wines are, are still made in an uh, old world style. There's, there's a new world thing about them Mm. and, and it makes it easy for, especially people here in North America to, to, to grasp onto. They, they understand them a little bit more. Um, there's a little more uh, new oak, but Torres has always been that kind of forward-thinking uh, winery. I want to come, I think we should come back to that when we talk about Rioja and some of the other regions in terms of yep. um, French oak, American oak, new oak, uh, old oak. I think that's, to me, it seems like a big thing when it comes to understanding how Spanish wine is evolving and where it's been and yeah. Anyway, we, we have to keep moving, right? Because uh, we've got a lot of regions to cover. Staying in the uh, Barcelona region, we, can, we have to go to Priorat. Priorat yes. has this chic aura around it. It's got a big name. Um, the, wines are, uh, the wines are big, uh, and they're also big in price. They're, they tend to be a little on the expensive side. But what makes Priorat so special? Why is Priorat suddenly, not suddenly, but you know, in the last couple of decades become one of the premier wine regions in the world? So Priorat is one of two DOCGAs in, in Spain, Rioja being the other. They have been elevated to this quality level because of the wines that are, that are coming from this region. The climate there really uh, benefits the, what they grow. It, it's Mediterranean, it's hot. Um, they have this famous uh, Ia Correa soil, which is uh, like a granite slate. 
they they say it's something that has to be seen to believe these steep slopes of steep slope slopes of terraced kind of vineyards um garnacha carinena they do really yep. well in this kind of climate uh because they need a lot of heat so to ripen we're going to talk fully. quite a bit about garnacha grapes during this tour of spain right and so um garnacha and carinena are the two yeah, so Garnacha is a, is a small, um, thick-skinned berry. It, it, it's high in sugar, therefore it's it's potentially high in alcohol. Uh, it needs a long growing season to ripen, which is why not all regions in the world can ripen this grape. Um, it's powerful, it's big, it, it's age-worthy. And then we have um, Carinina, which is uh, Carinan in France. Yep. Um it's a high acid kind of grape variety. It's deep in color. Um, it adds structure to a lot of the blends within, you know, throughout France. Um, but again, needs needs a lot of heat. The cool thing about Prairat is when you see the vineyards, traditionally the vineyards were all um, bush trained uh, vines. So very low to the ground um, to absorb the heat from that, those soils, those uh, granite slaty soils. Um, they have moved a little more to modern wire-trained uh, vineyard techniques. Right. But uh, traditionally, they were all uh, bush-trained. Uh, they keep their yields really low, meaning what comes off of their vines is um, a very small amount of clusters, so that, that allows for concentration of fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, and thus the deep concentrated wines. Yeah. And on a world market, yeah, I, I think I think uh, Prairat is very well known because people know that when they pick up a bottle of wine from Prairat, it's it they know what they're gonna get. They there's an expectation and they always deliver. Uh, there's not a great diversity of wines coming out of Prairat. I never thought about it that way, but it's No. No, I mean they they, they do a few different varieties and they do them really well yeah and the, but they're all powerful concentrated that's right uh, yeah okay so it's interesting that priorat as a region is surrounded by Montsant as a region and it's almost like a yes priorat's the hole in the donut it's kind of neat Montsant is all around the periphery um why is Montsant different and what makes it different and I think they're also using Garnacha, Grenache grapes to... Uh, to the, so like to I mentioned group. earlier, uh, within the region around Barcelona, there's a few different subregions. So until 2001, Monsant was considered um, a subregion of Tarragonas, which is uh, an, another little subregion of the um, Catalonia area. I think what makes them different is that it's a, a vaster area. Um, they represent some great value for the quality of wine, but because in, because they haven't they haven't really earned themselves that uh, reputation that Priorat has, unfortunately. But they do, but they do produce wines that are that are definitely equal in quality. So I think as the world starts to realize that, we might see the price of Montan inch up. Yeah. What, my, I, I like Monsant wines. I've had a few, and I, I like them, and I think it's it does sort of fit that, you know, high-quality price ratio yep. um, that, that I'm 
trying to find. And so I think Monsanto's quite, I suppose maybe the quality can be uh, spotty, I suppose, in a bigger region and maybe hasn't had the attention. True, I, they, they don't have the same, they don't have the same um, regulations as far as quality control, but that's not to say that they don't, they don't produce as, as uh, great of an example. I think they're... See, that's really interesting, right? You look at this spot on the map and you got Priorat right in the middle. Maybe the geography is a bit different, and then you got Monsanto around it. And so maybe Priorat has some privileged geography and some privileged soils, but you just got to know that Monsanto has some great bargains if Priorat well, is so be, amazing. It might be sort of like looking at Chianti Classico versus the whole region of Tuscany. So yeah. it's just we have our quality region right in the center, and then we have all the outlying around yeah. that. Not to say that it won't be the same great quality, but Monsanto just hasn't hasn't gotten to that international kind of recognition. Okay, I like it. I mean, it's a, a place to look at, right? And to, it's true. And to, and to check out. Okay, so we're going to keep moving because we've got quite a bit of touring to do. We're going to head north from Barcelona. Um, we're in the western shadows of the Pyrenees Mountains, right? So we're skirting not exactly along the French border, but we've got the Pyrenees Mountains between us and the French border. We're heading north, and there's some um, interesting small regions along here, like Somontano, uh, Navarre. Okay, Navarre is not a small region, but you know we're going to kind of bounce through some of these. Um, uh, Carignana, Campo de Borja. Uh, do you want to say a few things about these regions, just to sort of fill in the trip as we go because we're, we're, we're we got bigger fish to fry as we go in terms of more famous wine regions but these are pretty there's some pretty cool wines coming out of these these regions as we go yeah so I think that um, Samantano has some uh, great foreign investment going into that that area you'll see a little more international kind of varieties in there um, Cab Sav uh, Chardonnay, Gewurz, yeah, interesting. Gewurz. Who would expect Gewurz? In, but uh, it's some of the great, the greatest Gewurz that I've had coming out of that region. So, uh, well, yes, not very well known, and we might not see them in this part of the world. Yeah, kind of rare. Um, definitely a region to to look for. Um, just like you said, right at the kind of the base of the Pyrenees. Um, the climate changes here from around Barcelona becomes a lot cooler so different grape varieties can be planted here and achieve kind of their ripeness and they don't need as much heat. Um definitely doesn't need as much heat but um, these regions are interesting to look at. Uh, Navarra is a region that has been well known for producing rosé but there's still red wine production um, is fantastic. They have many different soil types and uh, microclimates around their vineyards. Uh, Navarra also has a lot of research going on here, so they're, they've been doing a lot of uh, modernization of vineyard techniques, and they they have been experimenting with um, machine harvesting, and and it's just they they're just two exciting regions to look at. Um, you like Navarra? Yes. And do we see, I know there are some Navarra wines around. It's something that honestly hasn't quite caught my attention. I don't just, you know, you Very can't get around to everything. Very hit and miss in this part of the world. In terms of finding them, huh? It's true. Some can be uh, very inexpensive. Some can be very expensive. Okay. Um, haven't maybe quite found their place in in our market yet. Somontano is 
quite difficult to find. Unheard of here. We can't yeah, we can't yeah. really get anything from there. Uh, but an interesting name and interesting stuff happening. Navarra is easy, easy, a little easier to find, and yeah. so should yes. I should I keep an eye open for Navarro? I think we have one in store. Okay. One Garnacho. Well, now you're trying to sell me wine. You anyway. buy wine here anyway. <laughs> uh, okay, so we're gonna keep on going, and we're gonna skirt around uh, La Rioja. Uh, it's kind of right next door, but as we're going up, but we're gonna quickly visit Basque Country. Um, again, an area where you know you may not find too many Basque uh, wines from the Basque Country on the wine shelves wherever you live. We certainly don't have very many of them here. You've got one, correct? Uh, one. Yeah, that's right. There's a there's Chacolis. a wine called Chacolis, and it is made in the Basque Country um, from an indigenous variety that I won't mention the name of because <laughs> I don't even pronounce. I don't even think I can pronounce it. Yeah. Uh, but it's made it's made in a very similar style to a Vino Verde. It's just in case um, people so how do you pronounce Chacolis? It's like T X A T X A K O L I. Yeah. But it's pronounced chocolate. Chocolate, almost like yes. chocolate, chocolate. But um, so they're always light in alcohol. They're always fresh. Um, they always uh, traditionally retain a little bit of carbonation in the bottle. So when you taste it, it will have a bit a of a bit spritz of to it. Yeah. But it kind of pairs well with that Basque uh, country cuisine. Um, they're very well known for doing um, grilled like meats and fish and. Um, yeah, it's one of the reasons I wanted to touch on it. You may not find too many wines on the shelves. Um, no. And they won't be super bargain prices as far as I know. No, they're not. I, I think if you if you compare like a Chocolis to a Vino Verde, the price is substantially higher. Yeah. But it's got a little more in- oomph and, and, and body to it. Okay. It's, it's, it's interesting. And, and one of the reasons I want to talk about it is because I think Basque Country is so fascinating. You've got these two amazing cities, Bilbao and, and San Sebastian. Um, the Basques are super passionate about cuisine. They're also, you know, kind of this semi-autonomous region that's always had its own personality, as we all know. Uh, uh, and so it's, it's just kind of an interesting, unique Right up against the French border. Anyway, there's a lot going on there, so it's kind of. I think it's worth talking about Chacolis and that. It's just another one of those regions which they 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 seem to have perfected this food and wine sort of pairing. And you think a, the Chacolis really? Yeah, it's and it's a great that. place to go and visit, and and yeah, the wine always just tastes so good when you're there. Okay. Yes. All right. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try to get there soon. Okay. La Rioja. Now, Rioja is, you know, this is, we could do a whole podcast on Rioja. It's got tremendous history. The name Rioja for a long time drowned out any other name for all practical purposes of wine from Spain. Um, And some of the greatest wines from Spain obviously come from Rioja. Yes. But, so we're not, we're not going to spend as much time as it deserves. We're just going to touch on Rioja, but it is it, you have to talk about this um, Well, like we were chatting about before, we could talk about this for a long time, but like you said, Rioja is um, on a world stage. They're, they're so huge and so important, and, and while there's a lot to talk about, um, it comes down to... Their, 
their quality and um, the way that they make wines really sets them apart. They were they are the other DOCA in Spain. Their region was created in 1926, uh, but they have some of the longest aging requirements in a lot of wine regions throughout the world. Um, it's quite quite a large region that runs east-west uh, along the Ebro River. Um, it is divided up into three sub-regions. They're all distinctly different. They have uh, different soil types. Their climates are a little bit different. Uh, they're dominated by Tempranillo production. But they also have some other important uh, grape varieties growing there. Uh, Graciano, uh, Mazuelo, which is uh, Carignana. So when I think of a Rioja, sorry to interrupt you, but uh, you know when, okay. when I think of a Rioja wine, I, I think Tempranillo right away. Mm-hmm. Can I assume that other varieties have been blended in to, to, to a certain amount? I mean, is there going to be some Graciano in there? Or is there a high likelihood there's some Graciano in there? There may be a little bit blended in. Uh, Graciano... Because I have to admit, I just think about Tempranillo. That's all, you know. Graciano can be a challenging grape to grow. It, ne- it needs a certain kind of uh, growing season. Um, so there may be a little bit blended in there, but they do have to have the majority. Yeah, there's probably some percentage requirement based on the That's DOC right. requirements. Yeah. But okay, um, sorry to interrupt you. So That's Rioja, okay. um, Tempranillo. Um, yeah, so Tempranillo, Graciano, Mazuelo for the red grape varieties. Um, Tempranillo uh, traditionally not traditionally it, it it's a great variety that that favors kind of a a cooler climate uh damp soils this is kind of the perfect area for tempranillo production uh, there's many clones of tempranillo throughout spain um, but here uh, the the climate and the soil types really uh, help to achieve like a, a certain style of rioja um, like i had mentioned they're aging requirements are quite strict uh anywhere from you know five years in total for gran reserva three years for reserva and two years for crianza um they all traditionally had a very oxidized kind of character about them they use a lot of american oak that's what i always think of when i think of rioja is american oak Yes, um, you know, but Tempranillo here has a, a completely different flavor profile to to other regions with within uh, Spain. Um, it, they're definitely age worthy. They have structure. They have, you know, a, a very decent amount of acidity. Um, but they, but they, but there's a softness to them as well. Um, Rioja is controlled. Um, by the um, Consejo Regulador. So they are very strict. They control uh, yields, um, harvest yields, how, how many grapes are picked from the vines, um, maturation, how, how long the wines are matured for, um, price per um, tonnage of grapes picked. Uh, they control vine density, how many vines can be planted in a it's vineyard. It's a good example of old school European regulation of wine. Yeah, they're in very strict. Yeah. 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 
Well, um, again, we could talk about Rioja for a long time. There's also whites, but... Oh, yeah. So Macabeo, which which here is called Virua, and then Verdeo and Chardonnay and Sav Blanc are, are two, four, sorry, four uh, grape varieties that are commonly grown here. Yeah, and you'll hear people rave about Rioja whites, right? These age-worthy Rioja whites. Right. And even rosés. But anyway, the what you know, um, not something probably that most wine drinkers get around to trying, um, but worth looking for. Definitely worth, worth looking for. And, and typically their, their blends, uh, Macabeo, which is the main grape variety in Cava production, can be quite light, floral. Um, you'd think that you wouldn't want to age it, but blended with a little bit of Verdeo and, and Chardonnay, it gives it just a little bit more structure, a little more complexity. Um, they, they're, they're really interesting wines to look for on the market. Okay. Cool. Now, we're going to have to get our skates on. So okay. we're going to fly. We're going to take an internal flight from... Uh, we've been dawdling along in our little uh, Vespa to get to Rioja. But now we're going to take a, an internal flight. And we're going to go all the way across to um, Rias Baixas. Yes. On the wild Atlantic coast. And Rias Baixas is... So that's that area, you know, north of Portugal. And I'm going to interrupt myself right there. As I mentioned at the top of the show... The overall recording with Shannon is a little over an hour long, so I've broken this down into two installments. Um, each one is about roughly, you know, a bite-sized piece of half an hour. Please come back for the second episode because there's a lot of great content. Shannon is going to take us through some of the lesser-known but really cool regions in Spain, including Rias Baixas, where we left off, uh, but then uh, Toro and Rueda, Castilla y León, uh, Yekla, Humilla, there's a lot of really interesting stuff. Please come back for that. It'll be available immediately. The uh, The two episodes will be uploaded basically at the same time. So hope you enjoy that. Thanks for listening. This is Craig. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.